Welcome to Closing the Gap, and I'm your host, Denise Cooper. Ever wanted good advice or insights about your career, leadership, or navigating messy organizational politics? Getting good advice can make all the difference between making the right choices and worrying about what to do. So sit back, relax, and listen as my guests and I talk about lessons learned about career success, leadership, and HR in the 21st century. How do we remain one of the top-ranked universities for innovation, best place for international students, and the highest producer of the best qualified graduates in the face of challenging economic, business, and global disruption? Well, that was the question I was put to my next guest, Pamela Brooks, who's the Organizational Development Consultant for Arizona State University. Arizona State University has won numerous awards and has been a leader primarily because they focus on developing academics into great leaders, managers, and teachers. That question, how do we remain on the top, is one that is dealt with by every CEO in the world. Today, Pamela and I will talk about her Mastering Leadership Program, and it's one that she designed and teaches for ASU. In addition to her work at ASU, she has her own performance coaching practice and some of my favorite articles, which you can find on her LinkedIn profile, are Toxic Workplaces and Should Managers Take All the Blame? Welcome today, Pamela Brooks. Thank you, Denise. I'm glad to be here today. It's, it's always nice to talk to a fellow friend and cohort in the business. Just a little background on myself. I think I gained my interest in leadership and performance back when I was a college athlete. I was one of five athletes to actually graduate, and I remember walking across the podium and just thinking, there's some people missing here, and why? And ever since then, I have always been looking for better ways to identify talent, better ways to bring out people's passion to build success, and the leadership that's needed to do that. And how long have you been at Arizona State? Uh, well, I've actually been at Arizona State for almost 15 years now. My first mm-hmm. 12 was as a, an instructor. I taught part-time while I was running my business, and I used to teach courses from small group development, interpersonal, um, public speaking, and argumentation, just you know, different things. But my favorite was dealing with like the small groups and leadership and the communication needed between those things. So I started there. And then for the past two and a half years, I moved into an organizational development position, and I am in charge of the Mastering Leadership Program here for the high potentials under the COO, um, Dr. Morgan Olson. And as a part of that program, what we are trying to do is to seek out some people that have, I want to say, the potential to move up. When we start looking at leadership and and what's going on today, a lot of times what happens if the old Peter principle were true is that we bump people up and they're not ready for it. And so Mm -hmm. they fail. Mm -hmm. And so this program is really to identify who has some potential for leadership and then what are some of those additional, like, larger skills we need to give beyond supervising to prepare these people for the next step. How do we get them to engage as a larger leader on a very large campus? ASU is one of two, I want to say, largest universities in the United States. We have around 27,000 employees right now, which also includes some of our student workers, but it's vast. Mm. (laughs) How do you deal with that kind of vast organization and still get training out there and to get leadership development? And so as a part of that program, 
one of the things that I'm trying to create is a little bit of cohorts so that these leaders across different areas don't consider themselves in a silo, but they realize there's other leaders just like them dealing with very similar issues. Mm-hmm. We cover different topics from communication. I have implemented the use of the DISC and the passions and even the judgment for personal coaching forum. And then they have to go out and use both the DISC and the passions with the people they work with and learn how to coach and understand them better. So, okay, before you go further, I'm sure yep. there are folks who they don't know, you know, DISC, passions. What? Oh, what? yeah, <laughs> true. It's my buzzword. You and I know this so well. When we start looking at leadership or we even look at getting to know people, I go back to the book on personal intelligence by John Mayer. And yeah. we have emotional intelligence, we have social intelligence and all these different intelligences. In his book, he really talks about the fact that we've missed a way to communicate or to understand each other on a different plane. And so when I look at the assessments that I work with, they become a language of understanding. Yeah. So one of the things that I work with, some people call it passion, some people call it personal attitude and interest, some people call it motivators. But it was something developed at the end of World War II, and what it's really looking at are the things that we're drawn towards or push away from from our past experience. Mm-hmm. So do I really have a love to work with people or do I don't want to do that? Do I have this real love to like grow and build things and be a part of something larger than myself or no, I'm more conservative. I, I would rather, you know, kind of stick to myself. So there's like seven major passions and they become, again, that language of what am I drawn towards or push away? And then when we look at somebody else that's different than us, because our common thing is to look at them and go, oh, they're not like me, so they're bad or they're awful. And it's like, no, oh my gosh, their passion's different than mine. And here's the strength that they bring and here's the strength that I bring. And now we can understand it. So instead of labeling it as something bad, we can appreciate what there is in what's happening. The other assessment that I work with is DISC, which is very common. It usually looks at the two continuums of introversion, extroversion, and if you will, people task. And probably one of the more common ones on the market that's out there, there's different forms of it, like predictive index. There's one that's colors. There's birds. There's a, But it's what yeah, it's really yeah. so getting it's like out the of the it. Yeah. yeah, they're all derivatives of the same thing. And when you, when you look at the original book that, that was written, it's about the emotional types of people. And mm-hmm. so what that assessment is getting at are from our early childhood, you know, two, five, seven, up to eight, nine, is when we develop our behavior responses. And mm-hmm. our brain not developed yet. So when you think about the frontal cortex being the logic center, we don't have logic. In fact, we hate our teenagers because they're so emotional. They're so driven by their limbic brain. And so here we create these behavioral responses to things, and and we're not doing it from a logic standpoint. And then we become adults, and we still respond to the present from the emotional state of our past. Mm-hmm. And so I had a, a leadership retreat, and I walked into the room, and I said, it's so glad to be here today with a bunch of two-year-olds. And they all looked at me like, what? <laughs> yeah, that would wake them up. Yeah, you know, and I said, here we are. Go ahead. And and between the two of them, one of the things that I really enjoy is the simplicity, if you can break it down to the simplicity of it and help people understand how they're motivated and that somebody else is differently motivated or communicate. Because the way I grab leaders is is this is how you can, this disc is how you communicate as well as how you think and kind of 
uh, look at responses to stress and what's going on. And when they can say, oh, wait a minute, that's just somebody, they're not bad, so my judgment doesn't go to you're wrong because you don't think or act like me, right? You're mm-hmm. just, uh, now they can start thinking about how do you get people who are not like you, because the richness of having them in the room is their ability to ask questions from a different perspective. And both of these help them with that. And what I have found in some of the sessions that I have been running, what is fabulous Mm -hmm. is when someone finally changes the judgment. Because when we look at what happens around us, we do nothing without emotion. So we kind of have the logic, we have the emotion, and we create a perception. You go to Brene Brown's work where we create a story. We can do nothing without that story. Right. But yet then we respond to the environment based on that story. Mm-hmm. So I've had literally leaders looking across at someone else and go, oh, that guy, he, he, he holds on to everything. He doesn't let anything out, and but he's, he's resistant to doing blah, blah, blah. So he puts his label on the person, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you go in and you find out that the person's extremely introverted and extremely cautious. Mm-hmm. And it's what makes him really good at accounting and keeping the books and doing everything, but he doesn't open up. Right. But his ability to open up isn't a factor of the work, but because of the label put on it, there becomes this negative interaction. Right. And so all of a sudden, the, pro- uh-huh. yeah, the self-fulfilling pro- prophecy, right? Self-fulfilling prophecy, absolutely. So then there's this aha moment of the the person finally gets to speak up and he says, well, well, no, I don't hang on to anything, but you come to me at the last minute and you expect me to provide something for you that's going to take me two to three days. Mm-hmm. And I can't provide that, and and I don't come back and complain, and I don't tell you, but I, I just can't provide it. And so there's like this aha moment. It's like, oh, so you need a little more time to process. So if I came to you early or I let you in on this meeting, you might be able to naturally provide information. Absolutely. So all of a sudden we drop that negative judgment, we drop yes. that perception, and we change a little bit of the interaction, and voila, all of a sudden it's like, huh, they get along, they get their stuff done, mm-hmm. and boom. And so, again, that language of understanding, especially when it helps us curb our emotions and create better stories about the people we work with, it it just it resonates. And I have seen it time and time again where I've had people, even VPs, major incident happen, two VPs, one responds instantaneously and says, we got to do this, and they kind of step each other's toes, and they're not blah, blah, blah. And I had worked a leadership group one week with one and the next week with the other one. It's like, what do I do? And I said, we both have had my reports and you kind of went through this. I, I might suggest just taking a lunch together and sitting down and looking at your reports. And, it, you know, like a day later, I'm getting these copies of text back and forth that they've exchanged their reports and they're starting to laugh about where they're similar or different. And then, you know, two weeks later, I'm seeing them at a meeting and they're getting along and it's like, voila, you know, here's this language again of understanding. So instead of being in judgment, which creates the defensive and the emotional response and the negative, we can now find that way to connect. And it's mm-hmm. all about connect. Yeah, I don't want to leave this just yet because you mentioned three reports and I know we, you know, the primaries are passion or personal interest and in inventory uh, or um, what's the other one? Motivators is depending on who's giving it out. Then there's right. the disc and the derivatives of the disc. But there's also a Hartman value profile. Which, yeah. talk a little bit about what that, when you add that to the combination, to the cocktail, what does that do? Well, to me, it is the heart of the cocktail. I mean, the other two are the color of the cocktail, but this is mm-hmm. like that, the, the something behind the scenes. And it was probably one of the most profound assessments that I ran across. And I know, right? I, I love it. It is. I just, 
I fell in love with it the first day I really ran across it, and someone said, you're going to own that someday, and I, I guess I do in a way. Mm-hmm. But I, I recently came out with the Critical Thinking Report, and I mm-hmm. ran just an open workshop on it here. Because the judgment, the critical thinking report, the Herman Valley Profile, what it's really getting at the essence is what's starting to come more from the frontal cortex, the mm-hmm. processing side of our brain. The other two mm-hmm. are emotional, and this is the processing, and that's why it's so amazing because nothing's been able to really capture that the way that this assessment does. Mm-hmm. And so what the report is looking at is a person's ability to kind of take in information, kind of like a camera taking in information, it takes in how do they sort that information, where's a potential bias, and then it kind of looks, if you will, maybe at their attitude of that information. Are they overly attentive to it or are they skeptical towards it? And how does this influence how they process and their ability to process? And it's not to say that one is better than another, but context is everything. And I think that's true of the passions, that's true of the disc. We can't look at something and go, well, that's really good and that's really bad and we don't want one or the other. But we look at context just like an athlete. We wouldn't put alignment in a receiver's position, and we wouldn't take a receiver and put him in alignment's position. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we have certain skill sets. And so we put a person within the context of their strengths, they perform. It's awesome. You know, it's like Marcus Buckingham talking about strengths finders. But yeah. these, unlike that one, don't just go, oh, here's your five, whatever. It gives you the heart of why. Why do you have this? Where did it come from? And then it gives you the ability to go, here's what I'm going to do to make a difference or change now that I know. It's bringing as well as what are the blind spots, right? I mean, so yeah, the blind spots. What's happening in the subconscious? What's yeah. the blind spot? And now that we've seen that, that we've brought light to it, now we can change what it is that we do or how we go about doing things to make sure that we make the best decisions. So in my workshop on critical thinking, you think about taking a class on argumentation. It's going to help my ability to analyze. The reality is we don't take time to analyze everything. A lot of times we have to make snap decisions. So what's influencing that snap decision? And knowing that there might be certain contexts that I'm going to have a poor decision, what are they? So that I take a step back and I go, whoa, wait a minute. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole with that. Just kind of like the disc. It's like, man, if I know that that's going to freak me out or that's going to make me explode, don't put myself in those situations or take the second thought so that you can think better, process better. Right, um, or plan to be better in that because um, exactly. what is it? Now we know from neuroscience that about 95 to 96% of all of what we do and think is because of habit, which is past, bringing the yep. past experience forward unconsciously. And that we're going to come from that perspective. And so that's why, you know, you and Joy have have nudged me gently into incorporating (laughs) the other two. It is, but I mean, it, it, but we 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 have to take that perspective. The judgment. There's a lot of times that I I can learn more from the judgment assessment, but then I look at this because I want to see how it plays out. Because I've had some scenarios like when I work in teams where the person who's just brilliant or really is the one that processes in a certain dimension really well doesn't have a voice, and so it's lost on the team. Mm-hmm. And so then, how do we take that and bring that voice? out and maybe they're very introverted and we we can't just say speak up because that's not natural for them but we can get them to talk to other people um we can get you know an email or say hey would you evaluate this and put it in a context where they feel more trust and comfort being able to express their ideas and yeah and, uh, so, and even nudge, nudge them a little bit into okay oh, yeah. hey, you know when this is it don't assume because oftentimes they're assuming well people already know that and it's helping them see yeah. that because you 
just process different. You have a different perspective based on the way you put information together. Don't assume that everybody sees it the same way you do. Yep, and you can get a much richer perspective. So especially when I've gone in, I sometimes – We'll go in to do like the entire executive team, and I'll do everybody one-on-one and talk about things. But then I bring the team together, and they have that aha moment when I put up the the judgment compass, and people can look across the different styles and go, oh, wow, we're all in the same quadrant. What does that mean? Yes. Oh, my God, I did that <laughs> once with a leader. Um, in fact, I, you know what I love? I think we talked about it the last time we all got together. I had a leader who started out in one quadrant. Everybody else was in the other. And within six months, seven months, everybody was moving into that other quadrant. But the disc was showing how uncomfortable and stressed out they were by thinking from a different perspective, but they follow the leader. Exactly. And I was just watching a couple motivational things recently, and I'm reminded of the fact that our brain has what are called mirror neurons. Yes. And, you know, we will mirror the emotions. We will start to mirror the behaviors of the people around us. And I see this in the leadership going on right now as I see the leadership coming from the top to the next tier. Mm-hmm. And the next tier is complaining about the leader above them. They don't mm-hmm. do this or they do this and da-da-da-da-da-da. And then you look one tier down and the, the, the second tier down is saying the same thing about those leaders. Why? Because they're literally copying the leader above them. Yes. And so how do we break that chain? And how do we get to wake people up? And the assessments are a way to wake people up because they look at it you debrief them and they go, oh, yeah, that's me. And I go, okay, you said that's you. And, and you said that's you. Now let's look what this looks like. Mm-hmm. And now there's like this, you know, again, bringing the unconscious to the conscious of, well, if you've agreed with all that, then this is what it means and here's what we're doing. So we need to disrupt the old behavior patterns. We need to disrupt the way that we've been communicating. And we need to create some new ways to process better so that we're all utilizing the best strengths possible. And emotionally interact with other individuals, respond to people who are not necessarily like us, introverts to extroverts, ambiverts, the whole thing, but people who are more task-driven versus people who are more people-driven. And to be able to get the group in general to be able to appreciate that, as you said before, we don't really like creative accountants, right? That's just (laughs) not one of them. So we really do want them to be on a more conservative, theoretical side, very regulatory interest following the rules, but for a very creative person, they drive them absolutely nuts, right? Because it just happens that way. But knowing that it's not that this person is really playing the puzzle piece for this company right, then it's about how do I emotionally not allow their style to trigger me? Absolutely. And when we start reducing the triggers, you stop reducing the negative emotional interaction cycles that are created. Mm-hmm. You can build a better unit of trust mm-hmm. or put in you know, steps, things that people can do to interact better even within teams. I went to a big training this last year in Wisconsin on facilitation, and I swear every leader should go to this facilitation workshop because it is about learning ways to bring out the best in the people despite themselves, if you will. Mm-hmm. How do we put and, and one of the things they work with is a thing called liberating structures, okay. and it's this way of using a a way of interacting to bring out the best of everybody. And so you're trying to build more trust, you're trying to build an area of comfort so that people feel like they can express themselves freely, and all those you know integral things that we need 
to bring out the best of people. And the assessments become one of those nice catalysts because we can look at it now and we can find a way to accept others. We can accept our differences and it does create a greater level of trust. And I think that's probably hands down what I hear from the workshops that I've been doing here at ASU when the feedback starts coming in. It's like, oh, Pam, yeah, we just we just did this thing with our team. And you would be surprised how much just that little bit more communication or this better understanding in this area have really helped us kind of get past the hump. And we've been able to come together to create something new. And, you know, so you just – you can – it creates a positive thing. So it's yeah. for me. A lot of people go, "Oh, you're just a disc advocate, or you're just a yeah, yeah." No, yes, no. Well, I've already done assessments. I've already done right? Yeah, I'm here to sell outcomes. The assessments are merely the catalyst. Yeah, and, and you know that leads he, me to a, a question, especially around the disc. I mean, you know, when we first met, what seven years ago? I think it is now, um, or thereabouts. Yeah, I was. I I wasn't into assessments because I came with a long HR background that basically saw the people who were giving the assessments and then the feedback were absolutely devastating people, particularly women and minorities, that they weren't really helpful in terms of the feedback that they were giving people. They were just trying to make them more like the male or make them more like the culture, et cetera. And even today, I still see a lot of people who use these assessments you know, oh, this is, and, and people walk away with, oh, that's nice. I knew that. Oh, okay, great. What do you, you know, you're out here, you meet a lot of folks. You, I mean, your company is growing now. You're doing work overseas and around the world um, with more and more people coming in. And your training is very different than any other training because I've been, a, you know, I got, I got assessments up the yin-yang. Uh, certifications of assessments, <laughs> let me put it that way. Um, They're a dime a dozen, right? <laughs> and everybody wants you to be certified. The reality is, is when I listen to people doing it, and I've noticed the very different and distinct thing that you do, which is different. And that difference is, is that it's, although it is about the assessment, we spend far more time talking about what does this interaction mean in a business context? Absolutely. For me, it's always been an outcome-driven understanding. It, it, I have a strong need to know, but then as soon as I know it, it's like, so what does this mean? Yeah. What does this mean in terms of how I need to change or do something? Again, performance-driven from the beginning. What does this do to change the outcome? And so when I have gone into training and training people, and even when I get the kickback, because I get them. I had one here at ASU, and, and the VP calls and says, Pam, I got somebody that won't take the assessment. They just they, they refuse to take it. And I said, well, let me talk to them. Let me find out why. And the individual, and I see this in others, that's like, oh, no, 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 because you're going to put me in a box. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be put in a box. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that assessment is just, it's going to stereotype people, and, and it's awful, and it's horrible, and it's bad. And I'm like, you know what? There's a lot of great assessments used the wrong way, and there's some really poor assessments used in a positive way. And I said, I'm not coming in here to stereotype anybody. I'm here to create awareness, and I'm here to bring in a catalyst to create better communication. The reality is, from a behavior perspective, we will adapt to every situation we're in, so there's no way I can put you in a box. However, that being said, even when I brought it into my classroom, I used to train people by showing movies, so like anger management. And the guy has a blow-up, and people go, oh, that's a high D. That's somebody high in dominance. Uh, and I'm like, in my head, I'm going, no, no. And then I went, you know what? 
Absolutely. At that moment, that person is responding with that emotional style. And if everything you learn about that emotional style comes into play and you treat them with that, it's the best way to treat them. It doesn't mean that that's the one that they're going to use all the time, but that's what they're using. And I think that's the most interesting thing about, you know, our gatherings and the way you help us as people who give these is that our conversations for the two and a half days or thereabouts really aren't on one dimension. It's about the blending of it and Mm -hmm. how it shows up in workplaces. So it's case study driven. It's, okay, so, you know, here's a leader who everybody's talking about. I just had this one, a leader who is really under stress and the company's not doing very well. But everybody, when they brought in my client who was brand new, they told them, look, this guy will kill you. He will slay you. And all he cares about is data. I mean, so imagine imagine having that reputation in the organization and everyone felt like that once he gets in, that's what they told him. It says once he gets on this train or this, you know, this road, you will not be able to get him off of that. And so the beauty of it was is being able to help him not categorize him as his his new boss as a D per se, but to help him understand why he has such a need for the data before you can even get any other arguments in. Yep. How to communicate with them in a way that gets him to suspend judgment over not having it to give context around it. And and, and so now, you know, I can't wait because we just started this. So I can't wait in two weeks when we talk again about, okay, so how did the meeting go? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's the greatest part, too, um, with the, the use of these assessments that I've been doing. I've, in my private stuff, I've done a ton of staffing at the executive level. Mm-hmm. And it creates the awareness and communication to find out where the issues are going to be at the six months and a year down the road. Because mm-hmm. everybody puts up the front and everybody's going to go through the honeymoon period and everything's great. And then all of a sudden, everything hits the fan. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> where did this person come from? It's like, no, mm-hmm. they've been there all along. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we just don't uncover it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the greatest part when I do that is we go into the staffing, we immediately use them in the onboarding process. Yeah. And so now the person coming on board gets to meet the other people and understand where their strengths and limits blend with theirs or don't blend with theirs and what to anticipate and how to get the best out of each other. So instead of waiting for the to person go, oh, yeah, that person can't do any long-term planning, waiting for them to fail at long-term planning, you know they can't do long-term planning, so let's just put it in place so that they can have the baby steps. Yeah, And so it's a way to kind of prevent some of the negative potential mishaps from happening right out of the gate. In fact, one of the, I think it was even, I've worked with some college teams still, and the Baylor men's tennis coach told me, he said, you, you tell me in a matter of minutes what normally takes me two years to understand about my athletes. Mm-hmm. And so here's this way of, again, understanding. So out of the gate, because you have a better understanding, you don't have as many of the mishaps, you don't have as many of the disconnects, you don't have the potential blow-ups. You can move into a lot smoother, faster pattern of positive interaction because we can utilize the strengths, we know where to utilize them, and we know where the potential limits are so we don't stub our toes along the way. Yeah, I've been, I think I said it the last time we met, that one of the new areas that I'm picking up are women and minorities who are the only in an organization and helping them to figure out how to navigate understanding and where to step in and rise to power or exert communication or style or leadership without the negative chatter 
that comes from, as you were saying, that kind of zero to eight, be good, don't be silent, whatever the world is telling them. And I think that is, right. you know, helping people, particularly folks who are not like everybody else, learn how to dance. Because I say diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is really understanding how to dance mm-hmm. and being able to dance with other people mm-hmm. in the process here. And I think one of the the things I really like about the, the cocktail that we use, uh, the three assessments together, is it not only teaches them about themselves, but it teaches them to be able to tr- to think about how other people might respond and how to listen better. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they can hear and ask better questions. So we spend an enormous amount of time figuring out how to ask a question of someone who may be, i.e., data-driven or someone who's highly conservative or someone who is, at this point, more power-hungry or power-oriented, power over people and using that inappropriately. And what would be the response and how to, how to get more productivity or collaboration out of the process? And the key is the questions. You know, yes. if you have an, a better idea of how to ask the questions or where to ask the questions, it's been proven that questions open up the frontal cortex. It opens up the mind to new possibilities. In Judith Glazer's work on conversational intelligence, same thing. I mean, I, I could go through a lot of different people have done it, but, you know, hers is the same thing. It's like, how do we ask questions? And a lot of times we ask questions that we already know the answer to because we really don't care to hear the answer. So how do we ask yeah. questions? don't have the answer to that really opens up and engages the conversation. And I just Or we ask the question um, wrong in a way that triggers something in someone else. And then once they're triggered, you know, you're not you're lost because now you're trying to figure out, well what did I do? I just asked a simple question. This person's gone off on, you know, some other thing out of it. How do you how do you ask to engage? How do you ask to get them to open up? Exactly. It's yeah it's it's a big key. In doing so, we create the connections which help us with our wiring to connect, that help us feel like someone else is listening to us. I mean, mm-hmm. they, there's nothing better than to feel heard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, if we can create that within leaders and leaders can help the people underneath them feel like they've been heard, the level of engagement is going to go up. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what it is. And, I, you know, you you use the word engagement. I I will tell an executive that we're really talking about productivity. It just happens to be on the people side. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. much productivity are you getting out of this person? And the one that always kind of makes them go, whoop, is if you had a plant that you were only getting, I'll say, 65 to 70% of productivity out of it, but you had the demand for 110, what would you do? Well, I'd go in, I'd figure it out, I'd fix it. I'd bring in new materials, I'd hire somebody who would get it over. I said, yeah. Well, when you get engagement scores in that zone of 55% of the folks are moderately engaged, 15% are totally disengaged, and then there's another 20 somewhere in that, what it's telling you is is that that's the productivity level that you're getting out of your folks. So now the question is, what's up under that that's causing them not to be so engaged? And oftentimes it's exactly what you said, this lack of connection, this lack of ability to understand at a deeper level what is it that you want, that our perspectives are different, my need to be worthy, my need to be correct, my need to please, because ultimately the boss, you you know, you got life and death in your hand. You know? yep. Fire me and my kids don't eat. They don't go to college. So let's not forget, as much as we want to have a collegial relationship, you got one step up on us all. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. 
and took away a few tips that will close the gap between making your dream life your real life. If you enjoyed this podcast, pass it along. Leave a question or a comment below. It would mean the world to me if I could connect with you. So go out to my LinkedIn page, ask for a connection, or Twitter at Coach HR. And remember, answers are better than anger. Seek empowerment rather than the divisiveness. And the responsibility is yours to achieve the life that you really want to have. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.